0: I am a pastor of pastors, and you have trouble with Pastor Greg, then let me know, and I can try to do what I can in the limited amount of time I have today with you. We are really glad to be here. Uh, Greg has already mentioned that we've uh, finished 46 years essentially a pastoral ministry and now have been drafted into the role as the interim national representative of the GARBC. I'll share more about that during Sunday school time, and uh, won't belabor you uh, with that at this point. I, I am David E. Strope, David Eldred Strope, and especially my wife is glad to be here. Her name is Deborah Lugene Horton Strope. Her maiden name is Horton, so we get to come to Horton Baptist Church and worship with you folks and hopefully lead you in uh, in in uh, continuing really where we've been. Uh, Behold our God, come let us adore Him, and we want to do that from the book of 1 Corinthians. So take your Bible, turn there with me, And uh, I begin with a confession this morning that somehow in order to maintain family harmony, I've at least been partially converted to enjoy, uh, I'm almost ashamed to say it, uh, some programs on HGTV. Uh, One of them is Vacation House Rules. It's hosted by Scott McGillivray, and he leads homeowners to uh, basically tear down their vacation home and uh, then reconstruct it for their use or for renters. And inevitably, when they start doing those programs, it's always fun. Perhaps some of you have done that, where you've started to do some remodel projects in an older home, and you start tearing off the drywall. You start removing floors. You start finding out what really is there in the substructure, and you see all kinds of things. You you, you see shoddy workmanship, shoddy materials. You see uh, nets of rodents. You see all kinds of different things that are there that evidently you've lived with for quite a while. It's the veneer of what sometimes at surface seems to be really attractive at the surface. But then when you look uh, beneath, I, I liken it to be when you pick up a piece of flat stone in the field and uh, it lift up what, what kind of creepy crawlies are underneath that rock. And I, and I want to suggest to you today from I'll do even more than suggest to you. I'll tell you because I think this is the word of God that that Paul, in addressing the Corinthian church, is going to give us five, at least in this first chapter, they're really introductory, uh, five uh, guides for remodeling life, for remodeling church ministry. I think many churches today have a veneer of spiritual health but not necessarily possessing spiritual health. One of the great difficulties is you pray for that, and I appreciate you're pray, your praying for the church in green today. We regularly try to do that at Ankeny Baptist Church to pray for our sister churches. In the state of Iowa, we have about 100 churches in the state fellowship, and we estimate that about 25 of them are 25 people or less. And so they don't have a pastor. They don't support missionaries. They, they most of the time don't have deacons. They're really, if you were to put them up against what the Bible says a local church is, they could not be identified as a local church, one that represents the New Testament teaching. The Corinthian church was a lot like that. The veneer was really quite acceptable. There evidently were a lot of people involved in that church assembly. Uh, they, They were evidencing, you'll even find here in the first chapter where we will allude to that. They had... The, the, the abundance of spiritual gifts that were uh, that were prevalent in their life and ministry, they were serving, they were doing all kinds of things. And yet when you pull the veneer off the First Corinthian church, my, oh my, can you imagine some of the difficulties? And you're familiar with a number of them in the Corinthian assembly. Can you imagine people getting drunk at the Lord's table? Uh, squabbling over over personalities. I am of Moore. I am of Gosnell. I am of, you know... Uh, Livingston, uh, and, the, and of course the spiritual ones here would say, well, we don't follow any human being. We follow Jesus, and that's alluded to here even in this text here in 1 Corinthians 1. So it's a, it's a church with all kinds of difficulties. The, the reformers used to use the, the term. We're, we're fairly familiar with some of the words, although they're Latin. It's semper reformanda, always reforming constantly reviewing life in church to make sure that everything that we do is indeed helping us accomplish the mission of making disciples for Christ. I I know we make that assumption uh, at at, uh, concluding ministry at Ankeny Baptist Church over the last 15 years. We really took a rigorous process of self-examination so that we could really a just ministry so that we were genuinely accomplishing what God wanted us to accomplish. So no matter what level of health you have as a local church, here are five remodeling rules that I want to give you from our text. So if you're there with me in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God that is in Corinth, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remodeling rule number one to Horton Baptist Church. You are God's church. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. Which is, if you're precise, and you can even look at some of the other salutations of Paul's New Testament epistles, this is a little bit of a turn to the way that he would normally address a church. For example, to the church in Thessalonica, he would say, to the Thessalonians in God, he would rather address them directly. But here, what he does with precision, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. He's trying to emphasize that God is the one who is the one who owns the church. He is uh, the, the preeminent person in that church. You'll see further how the text even says it in verse 2. They are sanctified in Christ. Most interpreters would say this sanctification is uh, a, a, the, the separation that is made by the gospel, where we are made Christs. We are made gods. It's really speaking about. Our position in Christ. We would typically, in our theology, we would use sanctification to talk about the process of God making us holy. But it's likely here what Paul is saying God has made you yours. For example, if I were to have you appeal, uh, to, appeal to several passages of Scripture, do you remember 1 Peter 2? You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. And do you remember, in, I'm quoting the old King James here, do you, you remember the next phrase? You are a peculiar people. Now, some more than others, I know. But in that sense of the old English, peculiar means some, someone that has been specially marked out as being gods, distinctively gods by virtue of redemption. So he is speaking of them as sanctified, that is gods. He says you are called to be saints. Most, uh, most translations here, and you'll find it, uh, here in in the e s v that the words "to be are supplied by the translators and uh, it, you really could say it it's called saints called holy ones there was a day uh, forty six years ago when uh, debbie and I stood up in front of about four hundred people in in our local church, and we made certain vows and promises back and forth to each other, promising that we would Uh, Be faithful to one another. And sometimes in the old wedding vows, it goes something like this. uh, Forsaking all others, I will cling to my wife alone. And so there was a day when I was sanctified to Debbie and Debbie to me. Although I relate to other women in the world, but only to one woman do I relate in the unique way of a husband with his wife. And so in this sense, since then, for 46 years, we've lived together in a sanctified fashion in daily life. Isn't it interesting how so many people want to profess Christ but don't want the saintly life of a believer? And see, the, 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 the normal idea from the text here is that you are called holy ones. Does God save a person? and not make him holy. The the answer seems both scripturally and logically to be obvious. When God saves a person, he saves that person in order that he might be sanctified. Further, you'll find in this text that he he links them with other believers, the last phrase of verse 2. Uh, uh with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He reminds them, and I would remind Horton Baptist Church, uh, it, it's a delight to come to a, a church that is in association with the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. You, you understand, but maybe you don't, that you are not alone. You have linked arms. And so far as I know, I think you're part of the Iowa Association, you're part of the camp association. So you're, you've linked arms in three specific ways with local churches because you understand that people at Horton Baptist Church are not the only people who know and love Christ. And there's a host of others that know and love Christ with which you have linked arms. Now, if that is true, and each of these five remodeling points I want to walk through, two, three, four are going to be really quick this morning. I want to center on one and five. But if that is true, if the church is God's, and I would ask you, is, is this church God's church? I even had to correct the way I referred to my pastoral ministry. I would often talk about the, my church until the Lord tried to help me walk through that. It's really not my church. It's the church where I serve, but it's God's church. If Horton Baptist Church is God's church, then personal agendas are banished. Personal agendas then will be banished. Now, I've been around long enough. I've been around 46 years in pastoral ministry. Do you think I've ever seen church members who have personal agendas and try to move people away from what is authentically biblical? Oh, it's quite common. I think it's just helpful for us to understand this fine assembly of believers is God's and there's one agenda that matters and by the way it's not even Pastor Gosnell's. It's, it's God's agenda as he has communicated clearly in his word. Remodeling rule number two and I will move very quickly so just follow with me as best I can. I really want to lodge our attention at the beginning and at the end. Notice verses four through nine. I give thanks to my God always for you now especially when we when we read this paragraph i want you to know how many times he alludes either to the work of god or specifically to the grace of god i give thanks to my god always for you because of the grace of god that was given you in jesus christ that in every way you were in, enriched in him in all speech and knowledge even as the testimony about christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. They were given gifts that we might call grace gifts. They were given grace in Christ Jesus. There was the work of God confirming them even in this text, that God will sustain you to the end. He is faithful by whom he has called us into the fellowship of his Son. I, there's Throughout this paragraph, there's the sense that, yes, every believer is responsible to walk faithfully with God for all of their earthly life. One of the great prayers that I've been praying in, in later days, I'm uh, 67 years old so I'm getting up there I've said it this way I'm not old I'm just older and there is a distinction to be made there Uh, but uh, the jury is still out however in my continued pursuit of Christ until the day I die My, my pastor mentor way back in the dark ages used to say remember there's no fool like an old fool just because you're old does not guarantee that you will not disqualify yourself. But do you understand? Do you understand that your pursuit of Christ and my pursuit of Christ, I came to Christ as a 10-year-old child, involving and requiring my responsible pursuit of God is rooted in the grace of God. The only reason why I persist in love and fidelity and faith in Christ is the grace of God working in my life right today. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 15, 10? Uh, He said, I've labored more more abundantly than they all, but yet it really wasn't me. It was the grace of God in me, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. So so the, the grace of God. God builds his church by grace. And I, I would like you to think in an application here this morning. Let's say that we're trying as a church or as an individual church member, we're trying to reach a person uh, for Christ who is very unlikely to respond to the gospel of Christ. Now I would remind you, let's be really simple this morning, who is the author of this book? I, I, I know the Holy Spirit is, but who is the human author of the book? It would be a man who was not voted the most likely to become a Christian in high school. I mean, Saul of Tarsus going on the road to Damascus with the purpose of stamping out the church of Christ. Was Saul of Tarsus any match for the grace of God? Answer, it, uh, while pursuing, having no desire, hating Christ, hating the church, wanting to stamp it out, doing everything he could to oppose the work of God, Christ, the living Christ, meets him, and somewhere between who are you and Lord, Saul is saved. So how how will this church effectively reach its community for Christ apart from the grace of God? So there are no unlikely people. There are just lost people. Some of them are religious and respectable. Others of them are immoral and godless. They're without hope, without God. And yet the grace of God can save any sinner. And I think Saul is a great example of that. Remodeling rule number two is God builds his church by grace. And if that is true, then human power and schemes are excluded. Human schemes and power are excluded. Remodeling rule number three, we must scurry. God builds this church through a unified body. Here's that passage verse 10. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we had more time I would settle on this little phrase. He's going to pause here for a minute and says I really want to appeal to you and I'm going to do it not bearing my authority or what I perceive but I'm going to I'm going to bear before you the name of Christ that there be no more divisions among you. And you can read the text, those who say, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am a Peter. And then those super spiritual ones, I, I am of Christ. And yet that's the evidence of a disunified body. God builds his church, however, through a unified body. And if that's true, if that is true, if God builds his church through a unified body, then submission is required. I, do, do you like the word submission? I know some, for example, some, and I would not want to just pick on women because men need to submit in various areas too. But some women can't stand to read First Peter 3, 1 to 6. where it says, what do you do if you're living with a disobedient husband? Well, you're to, you're to submit to him. Have you, have you ever noticed people are okay with submission as long as their authority agrees with them? But the moment that we, uh, uh, we find disagreement, there's where the rub comes with submission. Now, your, your pastors um, are fine men. They will occasionally uh, make errors. I, I, thankfully, it has not been often, but there have been times where even publicly I've had to stand before my church family and said, I did wrong, and I need to seek the church's forgiveness for a specific thing. Now, don't make that a weekly thing, Pastor Greg. <laughs> not helpful. Um, but God has given you godly, spiritual men, and guess what you need to do with your godly, spiritual pastors? Follow them. They're to provide spiritual leadership for your church family. You are to follow them. You're to submit to them because that's what God does in the process of building His church. Remodeling rule number four. God builds His church by the wisdom of the gospel. And you'll find it in the text where He really develops the theme of of wisdom. For the word of the cross is folly, verse 18, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Some of you have experienced that when you've witnessed to someone and you've laid before them the the fact that we are divinely created, that we are accountable to God, that He will, as a righteous, holy God, require an accounting from every human being, and heaven or hell is at stake that God, in fact, is triune. He is Father, Son, and Spirit, yet being one in nature. And that second person of the Trinity, equal to the Father, and equal with the Spirit, yet descended and actually became a human being, being, becoming God in flesh. And then, that person, Jesus Christ, while being crucified by both Romans and Jews, conspiring to bring about His death that was really foreordained by the hand of God the Father in order that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, might bear the sins of humanity and bear the full judgment that we deserve. Not only that, but this person died at the hand of God and rose again the third day. Now, you shared that with some people. That is the craziest, stupidest most ludicrous thing I've ever heard in my life, they'll tell you. Do you mean to tell me, do you mean to tell me that all I need to, if there is a God, is to trust this historical person, Jesus Christ, in order to have the hope of heaven and forgiveness of sins? That is the most stupid thing I've ever heard in my life. That's what they'll say. For the heart not prepared by God. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, <laughs> it's the power of God. It's the, the power of God that brings salvation. You see, God builds his church by the wisdom of the gospel. And I've put it this way. Have you ever noticed that uh, how, how do you build a church? How, how do you grow a church by, by, by God's wisdom? It's by constantly being focused and centered upon the gospel of Christ. There's in the last 15 years been what's known as the gospel-centered movement. And if you were to go on Kindle and Google uh, gospel-centered in titles, you would come up with thousands, thousands. And some of us would like to say we never took the sideshoe into psychology or into pragmatic human wisdom or into the business business methodology to build our church. We've always been gospel-centered. Have have you noticed, by the way, that more people come to Christ when you witness than when you don't? I know you are expecting really complicated things this morning. Uh, How does God save sinners? He saves sinners by the preaching of the gospel. How shall they hear? Romans 10. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they be sent? How beautiful, quoting the Old Testament, are the feet of those who share the gospel of peace. Faith, remember, comes by hearing, and hearing by what? So the person who's the skeptic, who does not now know or love Christ, and yet we share the word of God with them. Guess what God, by the Spirit, can bring forth from that skeptical, depraved, unbelieving sinner? The day where it finally clicks and they say, you know, I used to think this nothing more than foolishness. But now I see and I believe and I understand and I accept it as mine. You can sometimes quickly and sometimes across a process, you can see the light bulb turn on because God builds his church by the wisdom of the gospel. So, so what must this pulpit? it's a good solid pulpit. I can shake it a little bit, but in a in a church back in, in New York State, it was always comical. It's now been removed, but they, it, it came out of modernism and near Rochester, New York. And the preacher, they were doing a building program and in order to make the pulpit central, literally they poured the, 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 the pulpit in concrete so you could not move the pulpit from the center of the auditorium. Now it wasn't very good for children's programs, mind you, but <laughs> And they were doing that because what happens in a modernistic church that does not believe the gospel, what do you find moved? You find the pulpit moved. And I want to not even think about architecture or pulpit. Do do you know that churches that no longer believe the gospel, guess what their people don't share in their community with their unsaved neighbors? They don't share the gospel. See, because God builds his church by the Wisdom of the gospel. Now, I want you to hang, and I, I must only, this morning I'm trying to give you, uh, you know, the five-gallon pail of ice cream that just came out of the freezer. We're just going to scoop the soft stuff on the top because we just don't have time to do everything in this, uh, in this session. Uh, but, but I do want you to notice the theme, and you can let your eyes wander through the text. See the wisdom of God versus the foolishness of man. The wisdom, the foolishness, the wisdom. And now look at what he does at verse 28. And I'll quote from a little bit different translation. But let's look at remodeling. Oh, I didn't give you the if then, did I? If then, if the church is built by the wisdom of the gospel, then it is the gospel we must preach. Do you have on your prayer list a a neighbor, a coworker? a friend that you're saying, God, not only we want this person to be saved, but help me to see where I can connect with this person, maybe over a backyard barbecue, maybe uh, uh, take them out to dinner, do whatever, but Lord, help me to connect with that person to build a relationship that can carry the weight of a gospel conversation. Do you have all people like that? And you need to, because if the church is built by the wisdom of the gospel, then it is the gospel we must preach. And it's not only. It is Pastor Gosnell's responsibility, but it's mine. It's yours as well. Remodeling rule number five. God builds his church for his honor and glory. The, the Christian Standard Bible translates it this way. So follow with me at verse 28. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So just in the, Moments we have that remain. Uh, look at the phraseology. He talks about something that is uh, insignificant. That it's inferior. It's low in stature. The word uh, "despicable" is despised. It means to something that's treated uh, contemptuously. Uh, to try to illustrate. I, 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 through through Bible college, my roommate and I. For uh, I think two semesters, we we were our, our early morning job was every morning, uh, six days a week, probably seven days a week. Uh, w- our job was to go clean horse stables. A glamorous job. Do uh, you get the smell of manure? The, the farmer would say the smell of manure is the smell of money. So we understand that. Um, we're self-respecting, uh, conscientious college students, but. We didn't want to wash our clothes too often, so we would, st- we would store them in a basement closet in the dormitory all semester. And halfway through the semester, we began to uh, get complaints about some malodorous, malodorous uh, emanation, and we feigned innocence, of course. We, we, don't, we don't smell anything. What, what do you smell? Now, um, we... Uh, at the end of a semester, do you really wash those things? Or do you just throw them out? <laughs> you get the idea of what's something that is despicable. I mean, there's just no hope for it. <laughs> so, so that's you and me, which, although he does not identify it, that's total depravity. That's when he looks at me or you. There's nothing commendable in my life in any way that would make God want to love me or think that I am worthy of being a member of his family? And of course, he speaks about, in this text, he says uh, that uh, he, he does this so that people that are considered as something might be viewed as nothing, because heaven is not a place where we walk around saying, look at my merit badges, look what I did. Um, we have Awana clubs at our church. We're still a member at Ankeny Baptist Church a wand of badges are going to be left behind when you get to heaven. You're not going to show your meritorious awards. You're not going to show your Timothy award. It's all these things that look at at all the verses I memorized because no one boasts in his presence. Now, the next phrase is really important. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus. If you know Christ today, it is totally Absolutely, 100% the sovereign work of God. God. God did not look at you and see you as commendable. He does not have a time telescope in heaven looking forward saying, oh, I see, Mrs. Gosnell, trust Christ. I'll quick write that down before I forget it. That's not God by his eternal counsel solely based on his wisdom And eternal omniscience says I will save people and I will then work it out in the course of history. It's all of God. Why was I born to the family I was with a believing mom and dad and not born in the Hindu state of India? Why was that my life? It's all of God, you see. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus. Now notice the next phrase. It says, who became, not who is. Although it's by implication, I think you want to see here the incarnation. You you want to see the cross of Calvary. So it's an event. It's not that he is this. Rather, there was a point at time at which he became wisdom from God for us. Not as an idea, by the way. But rather, he's going to speak very clearly about who Christ is for us. Who Christ became for us. And you'll notice uh, it's from God and for us. So note the prepositions in that text. And then it says three things. He became for us our righteousness. And just there we can download, if you can, all of the truth you know about justification. I can remember as a confused 17-year-old college student, uh, wondering, do, do I know Christ as my Savior? Freshman Bible college. And probably did a stupid thing. I should have asked for help, but I didn't. Too proud. And I did happen to open my Bible and happen to be reading Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as simple as it was, all right, have you expressed genuine reliance upon Christ? If that's so, you are justified. You're at peace with God. I'll tell you what a glorious thing to, to know that we are sinners by nature, and we evidence the fact in daily life even today, But Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our sanctification. I I think here, probably a dual idea. I do think Paul is indicating it's not merely what God did to make me part of Christ, but it's what he does presently in my life to make me holy and godly. I want you to understand that there is no amount of self-effort on your part or my part that enables us to persist in love and fidelity for Christ. It's the grace of God. He has become our redemption. We, we, we've sung a number of songs this morning, and it, and it brings us to the reality of all that God is on our behalf, and we glory in Him. And why He does this, He says, I do this in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. A quick church Sunday morning Bible quiz that's taken from what text of Scripture? You probably have got it right there in your reference in your Bible. It's Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let the one who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. This is the declaration of the Lord. Why God saves as he does. He does this so that glory and honor would be his. The word boast here. Um, Have you ever talked to a low talker? Do you know what I mean? Now, James can hear me, but they can't. As opposed to, uh, the, I was in an airport last month, literally 50 feet away from a lady, had her cell phone up to her ear, and she was talking at jet engine level, decibel. I I knew exactly what she was saying. <laughs> it was like, I want to say, be a choir director, tone it down. This is not a fortissimo. This is a pianissimo. Um it, the, the word boast means to be a loud talker. Uh, Debbie and I can do this. Uh, would you like to know about our seven grandchildren? Because we'll talk all day about them. We'll, we'll boast of them, just kind of prattle on uh, uh, again and again about them. Uh, would you like me to talk about the Yankees? They're the best team in baseball right now. I, I can talk and talk and talk about them because it, it the, literally means... Isn't it interesting that what we love and delight in, our conversation naturally gravitates back to, and we normally and naturally will, will, will speak of them. I, we are commanded to witness. Would you grant me that? Um, if you love Christ it should be very normal and natural for us to boast of him. No one boasts in his presence. If the church is for God's glory, then our only boast is of Christ. So the question that I pose to you, will you build your church? Will you bring biblical spiritual vitality to this church through human wisdom or through God's wisdom. God's wisdom, you see, is the key to local church health. You as a local church must experience true spiritual health, vitality, renewed fruitfulness in making disciples by God's wisdom. There's an old hymn, probably no one knows it, an old hymn writer. Some of you have heard of John W. Peterson. I think he wrote this text. It goes like this, All glory to Jesus begotten of God, the great I am is he, creator, sustainer, but wonder of all, the Lamb of Calvary. Second verse goes like this, To think that the guardian of planets in space, the shepherd of the stars, is tenderly leading the church of his love by hands with crimson scars the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He reigns in glory now. Someday he is coming, earth's kingdom to claim, and every knee shall bow. And every knee shall bow. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And, Father, may that be our prayer today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the words won't be up on the screen, but I think most of us know. Let's sing together the gospel song, reflecting on that wisdom that's from God. God in love became Perfect man to bear my blame On the cross he took my sin